This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Thank you, Jeff. Good morning, Trinity. Um, if you don't know me, my name is Ronnie. I'm the senior pastor here. So today, we are starting a brand new sermon series called Meeting Jesus. Have you, um, yeah, uh, have you ever really, have you ever had like an, a, a memorable meeting or an encounter with someone? Uh, maybe like a sports star or something? This one guy reports he pulled into a gas station in Florida, and while he's pulling in, there's another big old, like, basically like a monster truck pulling in right beside him, almost hits his car, you know, it's like, what's this, you know, what's this about? So he rolls down his window, and he, you know, looks, and he sees this, like, this big, like, ball-headed white guy in the truck, and he leans out, and he goes, nice driving, Bruce Willis, and then the truck parks, and Bruce Willis gets out of the car, you know, so that was pretty memorable for that guy. Uh, well, something similar happened to me. So my family watches this silly show on NBC called Manifest. It's, uh, it's not a Christian show. I don't think it's that edifying or anything, but we follow the show. You know, if we're going to watch TV in my family, you know, like I want us to do it all together, not six different shows. So this is the show that we all agreed to watch, and it's, the show's called Manifest, and it's about this group of people who were on this uh, flight, this plane together, and the plane goes through a storm, and, and then when it lands, it's five years later, and this group of passengers is trying to piece their lives back together. So one of the main characters in the show, his name is Detective Jared Vasquez. Uh, he's kind of like the main love interest in the show. He's like the handsome guy, the main love interest. So hold that thought. So there I am in Dorado. With a few of you families, we're just having, we're grilling out on the beach, uh, having a great time, and it was getting late, so it was time to close up shop and head home, and the Garcias, we move like a herd of turtles, so I have to kind of get a running start, so I'm with Joe Nelson, and his golf cart is parked about 100 yards away, so we start walking over there to go get it, and as we're walking, the two of us, we see an old friend of ours, Brian. Now, at this point, I hadn't seen Brian for some time, and you know me. I'm like everyone's self-appointed pastor, right? Uh, so, I, you know, I really care about my guys. So I walk up to Brian, and I, I give him an awkwardly long bear hug, and uh, Brian says, hey, I want you to meet a few of my friends. So there, we are, there, there were these two girls and a guy. And so Brian introduces me to the two girls, and he finishes with this guy, and he says, this is my friend, J.R., now, I'm looking at JR, and I'm thinking to myself, I know him. I know him. I, I'm not actually sure how I know him, but I know him. And it's not like a distant acquaintance, all right? Like, I really know this guy. Like, almost like I've watched 12 episodes of conversations with him. You know what I mean? And uh, so I, I say, JR, how, how do I know you? And, uh, like, because we know each other. And he gently, very respectfully responds. He says, no, we've never met. And Now, this is a little bit unsettling to me because I'm like, we're basically BFFs, all right? And I don't know why. And so I don't let him off the hook. Now, Joe Nelson can attest to this. I get three inches from this guy's face. And I'm like, look at my face. We know each other, right? I'm sure of it. Now, he's starting to laugh, like, nervously and uncomfortably. 
because uh, there's not a lot of socially awkward people who would be so insistent like me. And so JR kind of backs off. He's like, I'm so sorry, but we don't know each other. Then after five seconds of uninterrupted eye contact, I let it go. Now, later that night, through a WhatsApp message with Brian, I connect all the dots. And it turns out this was Detective Jared Vasquez. Uh, and I, there I am insisting on our friendship. I felt profound shame and embarrassment. Quite memorable meeting for me. So uh, that's a story that left a mark. Well, it's all fun and games. And, um, but what happens when we meet God? Have you thought about that? Meeting God? It's a tricky question. Because in our culture, uh, when Christians talk about knowing Jesus, our society responds with a meh, meh. Jesus is just another figure in history who, quite honestly, is irrelevant or problematic for our modern sensibilities. And at the end of the day, Jesus is just meh. And that reaction to Jesus is evidence that although a person can say the name or the word Jesus, they have never met him. The great theologian John Stott in his book, Basic Christianity, he says this. He says, if you read the Bible, you will see that nobody who ever met Jesus Christ ever had a moderate reaction to him. There are only three reactions to Jesus. They either hated him and wanted to kill him. They were either afraid of him and wanted to run away. Or they were absolutely smitten with him and they tried to give their whole lives to him. Well, here at Trinity, we want you to have a true encounter with Jesus. We want you to know him. And if your instinct or emotion towards Jesus is meh, it's because you've never met him. So over the course of these next two months, we're going to We're going to have this sermon series called Meeting Jesus. And in this sermon series, we're going to study a few occasions in the Bible when people meet Jesus. And by watching others meet Jesus, we are going to discover the true Jesus. And we're going to see how people react. Not the cultural Jesus, right? We're going to meet the true Jesus, and we're going to grow. We're going to grow together. So this first meeting this morning, we're going to see a meeting between Jesus and and John the Baptist. And uh, this first meeting is just terrific. So without further explanation, let's uh, give our attention to God's words. Would you stand with me? This is John chapter 1, beginning in verse 29. Hear now the very words of God. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this 
is the Son of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but not God's word. It abides, remains forever. May he bless it for you and me. Please take your seats. So, in order to understand those five verses that we just read, we really have to get our brain around the figure, John the Baptist. See, John the Baptist was becoming a really popular figure in Israel. He's kind of this enigmatic guy, but the multitudes were starting to get turned on to him. And something about his preaching and his way of life, people were following John the Baptist by the masses. And some even asked him, hey, are you Elijah? I mean, that's quite a mistake to make because Elijah is arguably the most important prophet in Israel's history, right? This, this, this meant that, that God was no longer silent, that he was speaking again to his people. But no matter how much recognition John the Baptist got, he knew that he needed Jesus something fierce. John said, The Christ is so much more important and significant on on a whole different dimension than me. John says, I'm not even worthy to untie the sandal, the stinky sandals of Jesus. This is a guy who knows what he's seeing when he sees Jesus. And listen, it doesn't stop there. John the Baptist, uh, John the Baptist followed Jesus And he followed him not into prosperity. He followed him into death. Jesus says to John the Baptist, follow me, love me, obey me. And John did. And it got him in jail with his head put on a platter. And so as readers, we're supposed to ask why. I mean, what? What was it about Jesus that motivated John the Baptist to joyfully even die for him? See, clearly John the Baptist thought he was getting the better part of the deal. What is it that he knew? And if you're not a Christian today, like you've got to listen in on this conversation. Why people are so madly in love with Jesus. I think we're going to unlock and understand a little bit of John's love and loyalty for Jesus by this brief initial meeting that we, which we just read this morning. So we, um, let's study this passage, and, and we're going to evaluate it kind of in just two ways, by evaluating how, what Jesus takes and what Jesus gives. Jesus takes something, and Jesus gives something, and uh, it changed, changed John the Baptist forever. So first, Jesus takes so in our text today, John is with his disciples, all right, he's got a little crowd, and then from the distance, his eyes lock onto Jesus, and he exclaims those famous words that you see in verse 29, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, John the Baptist, by calling Jesus a lamb, he's not getting into name calling here like me calling Jeff a big ape, right? Uh, for modern readers, this language of Lamb of God, it, 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 doesn't, um, it doesn't mean a lot to us as modern readers. But for the original audience, it would have had deep 
spiritual significance. Now think about this with me. Uh, just a quick review of the Old Testament. Uh, the, the first uh, the first time we think about lambs is the first Passover, right? From the Exodus story. Fathers had to slay a lamb, take the lamb's blood, paint it over their door so that the, the angel of death would pass over and the, the blood of that lamb would save the family, right? And then, of course, the sacrificial system that gets introduced in Exodus 29. Uh, lambs were killed as a sin offering. In other words, an innocent lamb was killed in the place of priests and it symbolically atoned for their sins, right? The lamb died as a substitute for the guilty. And then, of course, later even in Isaiah, the great prophet, the Messiah is likened to a lamb being led to the slaughter for his people. Everyone knew what lambs meant, and it never worked out for lambs in the Bible, right? And, Jesus, and John says, behold, the lamb of God. John knew Jesus was the sacrificial lamb. The blood of the lamb was necessary because of death and darkness that had entered the world. Now listen, this isn't, this isn't just a theology lesson. John looked at Jesus, and he, he didn't think about doctrine. He felt gratitude. How, out, how else could you explain his wild affection and loyalty? John knew that although he had crowds following him, telling him what a spiritual guy he was, he knew he was a sinner that he desperately needed that lamb to take away his sin and indeed the sins of the whole world. Now, I wonder if unlike John the Baptist, our reaction to this story is meh because our understanding of sin is so bland. See, most people think that uh, people become sinners because they sin. In other words, they believe that people are neutral, but we make bad decisions, which puts us in the sinner category, in which case what we need is a little extra education, right? But what the Bible teaches and what John the Baptist was super locked into was that we sin because we are sinners. Sin is our nature. We are constitutionally a wreck See, sin, listen, you guys, y'all got to understand this. Sin is more complex than external moral behaviors. It means that we are intrinsically alienated from God. The way that the Apostle Paul in, uh, in, describes it in Colossians is that we are alienated from God, we're hostile in mind, and therefore we do evil deeds, right? We are not neutral. We are alienated and hostile. And that's why, that's what explains what, why we do what we do. Now, it's important to understand that all humanity was made by God for God. Did you get that? We were made by God and for God. And we don't say, we don't talk like that for any other relationship, right? A mother would never say to her son, I made you for me. Because if you do talk like that, you need to get help. That's called borderline disorder, Right? Right? It's weird. it's weird to talk like that. That's exactly the case with God. God made you for himself. And so if you are alienated from God, this isn't just another problem. 
It is the problem upon which all problems rest. It is a constitutional problem of the deepest variety. Are y'all tracking? Now, the hostility and alienation that humanity experiences is principally seen in our religious lives. And I'm saying that both for religious and non-religious people. Some of you might consider yourself non-religious. Everyone has a religious life. Everyone is trying to make their life count, right? Everyone lives by some religious code. And by religious, I mean some system of self-justification or self-validation. So if you're a churchy type, churchy people, they self-justify by saying, I go to church, I give money, I only use Christian cuss words like dagnabbit or in Spanish cañon, right? I mean, we all make these moral categories and tests, and then we pass those tests so as to justify ourselves. And we use those categories then to judge other people, right? To feel superior to them, to feel good about ourselves, to validate ourselves. Now, non-religious people do the same thing, right? They're super judgy. It's not just Christians who are judgy. Non-religious people are judgy too. Did you watch the Golden Globes, right? All the actors lecture the whole world to, on, on how to be woke, how to be good people from animal rights, gun legislation, whatever, whatever their pet issue is. But to be clear, the, these are where they form and shape and promote their ethical lines. These are their tests. And guess what? They write their tests and then they pass their own tests and they justify their lives as, and, and feel morally superior. This is how they know that they are good people. These are the causes in which they judge the rest of the world. It's a different set of 10 commandments but it's still their version of moral commandments either way, all right? So both religious and non-religious people are extremely zealous trying to prove their moral superiority. Why? Why? Because according to their own tests, their resume looks good. They pass their own tests, the resume looks good. Everyone is self-justified. Everyone is self-validated. Validated. All right, listen real closely right here. To bring your morality, however you define it, before God as a currency for acceptance is outright crazy. Not only does God not accept your resume, but the Bible calls your attempts to use your resume as currency a bunch of filthy rags. It's not only dumb, it's offensive. You can't pay off God with your resume. Could you imagine Neil Armstrong stepping onto the moon, looking at the earth from that vantage point, unseen by humans before, saying, yeah, this looks pretty good, but do you know what I made on my SAT? Right? Or could you imagine sitting at the base of the Rocky Mountains, seeing them tower into the clouds and say, yeah, but I got a BA in comparative literature. Like, it's absurd, right? In the presence of majesty, you don't start popping off about your own achievements, right? 
When you are in God's presence, you shut your mouth. You don't brag about yourself. But if you are alienated from God, you do do that. You just self-righteously camp out on your own good works because that's all you got. But John the Baptist, he knew better. He didn't care about all the notoriety or his religious achievements. He knew how broken he was. And so he threw his life onto the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, even his own sin. This is the only way to get your brain around the wild love that John the Baptist had for his Savior. How about you? Is Jesus meh? Stop with this judgy self-validation. What if you threw your life onto Jesus? Let's transition. So we looked about how Jesus takes something, right? He takes your sin. Your, he takes your constitutional alienation from God. But let's turn our attention to how Jesus gives something, how he gives something. As I was studying this passage, there's something that occurred to me upon reflecting on it. I thought it was really weird. Uh, Jesus, uh, or excuse me, John sees Jesus and he says, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, that verb, takes away, that, that verb, takes away, in the Greek, is a present participle. Now, I know that none of you guys are up to date on your Greek grammar here, but it's sort of like saying that Jesus is presently taking away the sin. It's present and continuous. That's how present participles work. My grammaticians, or whatever, I don't even know how grammar people here, right? So if John, if John the Baptist would have said, Jesus, who will take away the sin of the world, right? Because Jesus dies on a cross 20 chapters later. Um, that would have, wouldn't have caught my attention. Or if John would have said, um, Jesus, who took away the sins of the world. Like maybe that's like John, the author, writing this in hindsight after the gospel, kind of reflecting on what Jesus has done. That that would have made a lot of sense, but no, either of those options would not have caught my attention. But the question is, why does John the Baptist say, Jesus, Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? So this present participle is extremely important to understand, particularly if we're going to get our brain around the second part of these first five verses. Look there. In verse 32, John says, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. That word remained. He continues. He says, I myself did not know him, but he sent me to baptize with water. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Now, this word remain, this is something that is present, like present tense and continuous. Are you following me so far? All right. Now, the commentaries will tell you that that word remain is the same word that Jesus uses a bunch of times in John chapter 15. 
Now, I know it's not in your bulletin, but if you have it I'm gonna, or don't have it, let me read to you John chapter 15 because I want you to feel the force of this word. A lot of you guys will remember it with abide, abide in me. It's remain. It's the same word. So I'm going to read it with remain, all right? Jesus says, remain in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it remains in the vine. Neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever remains in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown away like branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. For by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and remain in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. All right. Everyone put on your thinking caps with me here. I'm going to try to tie this all together. What we have in our passage in John 1 is John the Baptist losing his mind because he sees the Holy Spirit descend and remain on Jesus. Now, this is like deep, deep, deep Old Testament symbolism. The Spirit is who anoints the King, the Messiah, the Christ, and that anointing stays. And in fact, Isaiah chapter 61, the, the big messianic passage, he says, the Spirit is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news. And so what's happening is Jesus is fulfilling Isaiah 61 in John's presence. And Jesus, with this same anointing, is then baptizing others. But he baptizes not with water, but with the Holy Spirit. That is to say, Jesus is giving his abiding power, his remaining power to others. So what is remaining power? And that's where John 15 helps us. Jesus says, remain in me. You can't do anything without me. But if you remain in me, my words in you, then ask whatever you want. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. That is to say, you're, you're living out of this power, right? Of this power to remain. And here's the kicker. Jesus says, as the Father has loved me. In that way, as, as God loves me, so in the same way, I have loved you. Remain in my love, Jesus says. So the natural question is, how do you remain? And Jesus responds, if you keep my commandments, that is how you remain in my love. Now, most of us here are incurable legalists, right? And you you make this the sort of if-then negotiation. If we keep God's commandments, then we get God's love. Don't do that right? You simply can't do that with this text because it's situated in God's fatherly love towards Christ. He says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. That is the interpretive key. Christ loves you. Remain in that love. Let that light your choices on fire. Let it make your heart explode with affection for Jesus. Let it turn duty into delight. Let it turn law 
into love. Because that is what it did for John the Baptist. That's exactly what it did for John the Baptist. Why in the world would a guy willingly die for Jesus? Is he just going to die for Jesus for a rule? No, because he was crazy about him. I mean, he could have recanted and saved his own skin, but he died because he was so in love with Jesus. He died because even the axe on John the Baptist's neck could not take away his unbreakable joy. Man, I want that for myself and for you. And the anointing of the Holy Spirit is always about empowering the life of a person to see Jesus and to run after him, to be filled with this overflowing joy. Now, some of you who gave your lives as adults, you know what it means to be baptized by the Holy Spirit, right? It happened on a normal day. You weren't looking for Jesus. You didn't need him. When you heard the name Jesus, your reaction was meh. And then the spirit came upon you and it turned your dead heart into a fleshy heart. And you can't explain it. But Jesus caught your gaze and the ordinary turned into extraordinary. And you can't explain this new joy and spiritual hunger in you, but you know you love him. You know you love him, and you, and you get hungry to know more of him. And, and, and so people dying for Jesus and having their heads cut off because they love him, that starts making a little bit of sense. You're like, I get it. Right? A lover would always die for his or her beloved. Right? Wouldn't they? There was joy where before there was indifference. New, real, joyful faith. That's what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is. And then for Christians, you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. You're sealed with God's fatherly love. But maybe you quenched it. Maybe you suffocated it. Maybe you went through a dry spell and then you let God's love just wreck your life in a beautiful way. And all of a sudden, as Christ's love remains in you, present and continuous, you remained in him. And the joy came back and you can begin remembering back to simpler times when following Jesus really seemed possible. Like, I can do this. I can follow Jesus. When you had optimism about changing things in your life, like, I can change. It's the Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. See, the Spirit brings life where there was death. That's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Jesus takes away your sin, but he gives you the Holy Spirit that remains on you. John the Baptist knew this, and it set his life on fire. When we meet Jesus, 
and understand him for who he truly is. We either run for fear, kill for hate, or worship for love. Which one is it for you? Which one is it for you? Let meeting Jesus set your life on a new trajectory of remaining and unbreakable joy. Amen. Amen.